Amen. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and we'll be starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself, set him before them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So this account struck me again here reading this a few weeks ago. Um, the disciples coming to Jesus and asking him this question. And the thought came to me, what, what were they expecting him to say? You know, I mean, what was the answer they were expecting to receive and I think the answer they were expecting to receive was one of them. Like he was, They were expecting flattery. They were expecting praise. And the reason I think this is because this actually came up quite a bit, you know, in the Gospels more, on at least more than one occasion. Uh, Mark 9, he, he, asked that he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? And it says that they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And in Luke 22, it says, There also arose a dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded the greatest. So this, this happened a few times during, this was, this was a conversation that the disciples were having uh, more than once. It, you know, it's commonly thought that the disciples at this time, they were still, they were still expecting the kingdom of God to be this, this soon coming earthly kingdom. Jesus is set up as king over the Jews. He's the Messiah. And they had on their minds... We're, we're, we're the privileged few. We're a part of the inner circle. He hand-selected us. He called us. He, he uh, explained the parables in private to us. We're kind of, we're the in crowd. You know, we're the special ones. And so maybe, you know, Judas was the, the treasurer. He carried the money bag. Maybe he thought, I'm going to be the chief treasurer in this kingdom. You know, or John, the beloved disciple, maybe thought, I'm going to be the counselor, you know, to the king. These special, prestigious spots. So they're, they're coming to him, who, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They had elevated views of themselves and perhaps expected flattery, expect, perhaps they expected praise. So imagine the shock. I mean, you know, we read this account like it's normal, like this is a normal thing to do. Here, I'm going to call a child and set, set him before you guys. Uh, but imagine the shock. They're expecting this, and he calls a child a lowly and unimportant member of society sets them in their midst and says, this is what, this is what true greatness is, is like. I mean, totally, totally shocking. I mean, has, has that ever happened to you where you, were, you met with someone, you were expecting one thing and you got the exact opposite? I mean, imagine an employee, perhaps they're having a good year, they're doing well, they had a good meeting with their boss, and a month later the boss calls them in, they're, 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 they're expecting a raise, they've got their hopes really high, and the boss says, Johnny, sorry, but you're fired. You know, it's like, it's a double blow when you're expecting one thing and you get the exact opposite. I remember one time I was having a, a conversation with a dear brother about a year ago, and, you know, he's like, well, should I bring this thing up to you now? And I was kind of expecting praise or something, you know, encouraging, and then he rebuked me. And uh, it's, dub it's doubly humbling when you get the opposite of what you're expecting. But here it is. This is what Christ did with the disciples when he set this child 
before them. None of us could have predicted what he did. It was astonishingly simple and yet profound. You think about all the signs that Jesus did in his life, the multiplying of the loaves, uh, you know, raising Lazarus from the dead, and all the teaching in regard to the signs. Well, here's an unusual sign, the sign of the child, right, just brought in in their midst. So what are the main truths that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples and that he wants to teach us? Well, I think there's two things here. Not only will you not be great in the kingdom of heaven, you cannot even enter the kingdom of God without humbling yourself like a child. It's the starting point. And number two, true greatness in God's eyes involves humbling yourself like a child. So before we kind of look into those, what, what, what does Jesus mean by this, this illustration of using a child? Well, first off, he's not teaching that children exemplify humility in their character. That's simply not true. I mean, it's, children are self-willed. They're defiant. You have to repeatedly, they have to repeatedly be humbled. And if you see a kid who's acting crazy at school by age six or seven, you can almost guarantee if you go back to the home, there was no, there was no consistent, dis, they, they were not consistently humbled. They didn't have their will broken. You know, they always got their way. Uh, they're, they're hams, right? I mean, they love to be the center of attention. They love that. You know, they want the conversation to be about them. So it's not a humility of character. I remember when I, I was a small child, I wrote a paper in grade school about how I am not on the world, but the world is on me. So basically, I'm this independent object floating in space, and the world is attached to me with all the other people, you know. So uh, that that is the way children think, right? I mean, that they're the center of everything. So what is he speaking about here? He's speaking as to positional humility, right? They're low in the world. The neurosurgical team that has a problem, they're working on the brain, they don't say, like, time out, stop, let's, let's call a five-year-old and ask them what we should do next, right? I mean, that's not what you do. There's a financial crisis going on. Let's consult our kids and ask them what we should do here in the government, right? They're, they're unimportant. If you have two families that get together for dinner, you don't, the, the whole conversation of the time doesn't focus on the four-year-old. You don't let him dominate the, the conversation. You say, be quiet, the, the adults are trying to talk right now. And, and we're trying to have a conversation here about something significant. So they're lowly, they're insignificant, they're often overlooked, and they occupy no great in, or no important roles. They have no grand aims to conquer, to get rich, or to make it in the world. They're just, they just want to play, right? They're just kids. That's their world. Matthew Henry said this, As children are little in body and low in stature, so we must be little and low in spirit in, in, our, thought, in our thoughts of ourselves. That's the, that is the reality. So they're low in position. The children are low in position in this world. They're low also in dependence, right? Children are needy. They're, they need their parents. You hear the baby robins chirping in the nest, and what, what are they doing? They got their heads up, and they're, they're waiting for the mama robin to bring the worm, right? They, they're crying out for help. They, need, they can't get that worm by themselves. They need someone to bring it. And so it is with us. When we're kids, we need, from the time you're born, you need your parents. You can't do anything apart from the help of your parents. As you get older, you, you can't... You, the child can't pay bills, right? They can't figure out how to run the heater in the house. They can't do any of those. They come to you. I need clothes. I need this. I need this. They're coming constantly with needs to their parents, utterly dependent. And so it must be with us and God. 
So that's what Jesus is illustrating with, these, with this teaching of children. So let's look at this first thing he says, verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first teaching is this. Not only will you not be great in my kingdom, but you can't even get into it. You can't even be a part of it. You can't even belong to it. He says, unless. It's an absolute necessity. There is no one who comes to Christ with their pride fully intact, right? Something happens. It has to be broken. You come needy or you don't come at all. That's the reality. For a man to follow Christ, there must be conversion. He says, unless you're converted, unless something radical takes place in your heart and life and the way you think about the world and the way you think about yourself and the way you think about God, you cannot, you will not be saved. A total change of your old way of thinking. How does the world think? How does natural man think? Well, you think in terms of yourself. Your life is all about you. You're doing what you want to do. You spend your money on what you want to spend your money on. You go where you want to go. You take the job that you want. To become a Christian, all that gets put on the floor, right? And you say, Lord, my life is no longer my own. I'm giving it to you. It belongs 100% to Jesus Christ. And you can, you can have me work where you want me to work, make the amount of money you want me to make, live where you want me to live. That's the beginning of Christianity when you come to Christ is this surrender, this humbling yourself like a child. Your ambitions, your goals, your glory, your name, your reputation, everything laid down to say, I'm going to be a follower of the Lamb. I'm going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's the great principle of Scripture. If you're proud, if you're asserting your own will, God will oppose you, and he will oppose you to the end, and he will win, right? No man opposes God and wins in the end. There's no man laughing in hell. There's no laughter. There's no victory. There's no sense of, well, I told you, God. No, the man will be totally, completely humbled, and God will be exalted in his judgment. God opposes the proud. If you're not saved, there's one big reason why you're not saved. It is pride. Pride in your heart. You say, this man shall not be king over me. He shall not rule over me. That's the reason you're not saved. You're unrepentant of your pride. Holding on to your own life. Holding on to your own way. Rather than sweet surrender to another. Sweet surrender to Christ. The psalm says, says this. The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. That's, that's the wicked. They're haughty in their countenance. They're not going to seek him. They will not seek him. We must humble ourselves to even enter the kingdom of God. How else must we humble ourselves? We must humble ourselves like a child in terms of dependence, right? You depend upon another for salvation. Salvation is the gift of God. Is that not amazing? The free gift of God. What do I have to do? Depend upon Jesus? That's all I have to do? is give up my self-life and just rely upon what Jesus did, that God became a man, that Jesus willingly went to the cross to take away my sins, that he rose again from the dead, that if I simply believe that and depend my whole soul upon that work that he did, I'll be saved. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches, right? We must depend, rest upon his finished work. So, 
unless you're converted and become like children, you won't even enter the kingdom. But the other thing he says is this, that true greatness is humbling yourself like a child. He says, verse 4, whoever then humbles himself is this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven. He doesn't say there's no such thing as greatness. He says there is such a thing as true greatness, but it's, it's the opposite of the way that the world thinks about it, right? Flip over to Luke chapter 22, please. A similar account. Luke chapter 22 and verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was to be regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. At first I thought about saying, you know, Christ here flipped the reality of what true greatness is. And I thought, no, that's not right, actually. We're the ones, we're the ones that flip the reality of what true greatness is. It's always been that way in the eyes of God. God made it that way. But it's man who's flipped it, sinful man who's flipped it to make, to make us think that true greatness is to become powerful or to become rich or to become in control. Or you think about what are people's dreams? They, they want to win the lottery. Why? So they can sit around on a beach and have people serve them, right? <laughs> that's the goal. I can do nothing and just be totally, have my flesh pampered to. That's the idea of, oh, that, they've really got life, right? They've really got the good life. But it is not so in God's eyes, Right? Jesus here, is there, is there anyone greater than Jesus? And the answer is no. He says, but I am among you as the one who serves. He say, he's saying, I'm the demonstration of what true greatness is. He said, I'm not the one sitting back at the table. I'm not the one sitting back. I'm the one serving. That, therefore, this is the greater position. This position of lowliness. This position of humility, of servi- servitude. I am among you as the one who serves. He was rejected by the Jews. Think about this. Probably in great part because they could not fit this into their way of thinking, right? I mean, they, couldn't, they had no place for a suffering servant, the meek and lowly lamb. You know, they had no place for him to fit in this. The man who washed the feet of the disciples and they kicked him outside of the gate and crucified him. So we are to have a low view of our own importance like children. Listen to some of the New Testament exhortations here. Let me turn over to Romans 12. You don't have to if you don't want to. Romans 12.3 For through the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think but to think so as to have sober judgment. Romans 12.16 Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So first off, just thinking rightly in your mind. What is pride? It's elevation of your heart. It's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, that you're more important, that you're more special. What is humility? It's the opposite. It's to have a low opinion of yourself, that you're not some great person. You're not some... 
magnificent example. You know, you're just a servant. 1 Corinthians 10.12, Paul gives these warnings in the Old Testament of, of people that sinned and the danger of sinning. And he says they were an example to us. Let's see, 10. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. He's saying the Corinthians, they're in danger of pride. They're thinking, we've got these gifts. We stand, right? In your mind, you're thinking, I'm doing really well spiritually. I've got the gift of tongues. You know, I have this gift. Therefore, well, I'm not in danger of falling. That's, that's, that's the worst place to be, right? If you're at the place where you think you stand, you're, you think you're spiritually strong, then you're not. That's, that is not what spiritual strength is like. Spiritual strength is when you realize you are utterly weak. You are utterly dependent upon Christ for anything good in your life, any growth. Charles gave the account of the one man that was interviewed. and he, They interviewed him and they said, well, I know one area where I'd never fall. I would never fall in the realm of my marriage. My marriage is so strong. I know that's one area the devil would never attack. And then give it a few years and the man committed adultery. I mean, that's a scary place when you get to the place where you say, I'm never going to fall in this area. It's not realizing you're kept by the grace of God. Philippians uh, 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This, this verse really helped me. A brother came and talked to me about being more of a servant to my wife a few weeks ago. And he said, this, this idea is the idea of rank, considering someone as more important than yourself. Uh, it was used in military terms. So it's like you're having the mindset, well, they're a higher rank than I. I mean, do, you, do we have that mindset? When you look out at the brethren, are you thinking, oh, well, they're a higher rank than I. I'm just their servant, you know. Or do you think well, they should be serving me? They should be t- paying attention to me. You see, it's the opposite. We need to do this, to think rightly of ourselves in, in the light of God. So what is the opposite of this, this spirit of humility, this childlike spirit? Well, it's the spirit of pride, right? I want to read an account, a short account here. This is Jonathan Edwards um, kind of defending the work of the revival that happened there at Northampton. But he had some really good thoughts about warning his people about the danger of pride, and particularly spiritual pride. He said, we must expect that Satan, the great enemy of this revival, will try his hardest to mislead us. It will be a great victory for him if he succeeds. He knows that it will do more to further his cause than if he had victories over a hundred others. We need to watch and pray, for we are only little children. The roaring lion is too strong for us, and the old serpent too subtle for us. Humility and an entire dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ will be our best defense. Let us therefore take great care not to become spiritually proud. Let us be careful that we do not become boastful about the extraordinary blessings and experiences experiences that we might have received. After such blessings, we need to take particular care with our own hearts so that we do not begin to think of ourselves as among the best of God's people. We must not assume that we are the ones most able to instruct and reprove this evil generation. We must not think that we are prophets or extraordinary ambassadors of heaven. When we have remarkable experiences of God, we must not become conceited. Moses, when he had been speaking with God in the mountain, had a shining face which dazzled Aaron and the people 
yet Moses himself could not see it. Pride is a danger for all of us. God saw that even Paul was in danger of it, though Paul was perhaps the greatest saint who ever lived, and though he had spoken with God in the third heaven. Remember, God gave him that thorn in the flesh. Yet still he was in danger of pride. Pride is the heart's worst snake. It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. It is the lowest foundation of the whole building of sin, and it is the most secret and deceitful of all the sins. It is ready to mix with everything. It's in any work that, God, that, that you're a part of, it's ready to get in there. Nothing is so hateful to God. Nothing is so contrary to the whole spirit of the gospel. Nothing harms the gospel as much as pride. There is no sin that does as much to give the devil entry into the hearts of the saints as pride. I have seen it happen many times, and with great saints, that the devil has attacked them in this way immediately after some great experience and has led the saint astray. Only God can then open their eyes and allow them to see that it was pride that betrayed them. So the dangers, the danger of pride. Brethren, I mean, think about that even with regard to us. God has been gracious to us, right? I mean, there have been conversions. There's been encouraging things that have happened. But let it never be that it leads to some attitude of superiority, right? That we're better than other churches, or that we're special, or if that God were to send a revival, it would be here at this church in town. I mean, God is free to do as God pleases. He can pour out a spirit on the church down the street with less doctrinal light, and he's free to do so, and he'd be glorified in it. He doesn't owe anything to us. No, we must be like children before God. We must have no great ambitions, no spirit of competition. When one member is honored, the rest of us should rejoice, right? Do you rejoice when others excel in grace or when others, God blesses them in a special way? Or do you find yourself envious? All of us must be like John the Baptist and say, he must increase, but I must decrease, right? Let it be the, let it be the cry of our heart, the attitude of our soul. This other book that I have here, been reading a lot of Jonathan Edwards stuff, was the account of Sarah Edwards, Jonathan's wife, when God began to really pour out a spirit into her life, one of the things that he was dealing with was uh, this, this issue of pride, just caring a lot about how the town people felt about her or even the thoughts of her own husband. Um, but Jonathan kind of gives an account of what was going on with her in terms of God working humility in her. He said this, he says, These transporting views and rapturous affections are not attended with any enthusiastic disposition to follow impulses or any supposed prophetical revelations he's saying these experiences she had they didn't they didn't lead her to be puffed up with pride or like i i got caught up to the third heaven and i you know i prophesied about this nor have they been observed to be attended with any appearance of spiritual pride rather they have been with great increase of humility and meekness and a disposition to honor and to prefer others it is worth mentioning that when these discoveries and holy affections were evidently at the greatest height, which began early in the morning of the Holy Sabbath and lasted for days together, melting her down in the deepest humility and poverty of spirit, reverence and resignation, sweet meekness and universal benevolence, two things that were felt in a remarkable manner. And this is what happened to her when, when God began to work this humility in her. First, she had a peculiar aversion to judging other professing Christians of good standing in the visible church with respect to their conversion, 
or degrees of grace. She's, so before, she would always kind of be judging other Christians, looking down on them. They're, they're at this level, and I'm up here, and you know why can't they get up here closer to me? She also had an aversion to intermeddling with that matter, so much as to determine against and condemn others in the thoughts of her heart. Such, such things appeared hateful as not agreeing with the lamb-like humility, meekness, gentleness, and charity, which the soul then, above other times, saw to be beautiful. She felt this, the disposition she felt was to prefer others to self and to hope that they saw more of God and loved him better. However, before this time, under smaller discoveries of grace, she had a disposition to censure and condemn others. So God began to work this in her, right? This, this childlike humility where she, she just wanted others to be blessed, others to excel. It was no longer this competition, but this childlike humility. So, brethren, how do we come? I mean, how do we come to the meetings? I mean, do, do we come to be served or to serve? I mean, do you come and think, well, so-and-so didn't talk to me and so-and-so didn't pay attention to me? And, you know, what is that? That's just pride. Are you thinking about how can I bless others? How can I encourage others? How can I serve others? God help us in this, this childlike humility. So, brethren, what are the, what are the applications here? One, if you're not a Christian, hear the words of Jesus Christ again. You must be converted. Unless you're converted and become like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Something must happen in your heart and life where you're no longer upon the throne. Christ is upon the throne in your life and in your heart. Holding on to your pride is not worth going to hell over. It's not worth it. A few years in this world where you're in control and then an eternity of suffering and separation from God and light and love. Christ is worthy of your life. For the Christian, let us examine our waves. Do we have too high a view of ourselves? Don't think that there's no pride in your life. I mean, it is the most subtle of sins. And, and the Christian life is just a lifetime of God breaking down and breaking down and breaking down your pride, humbling you. And changing you to be lamb-like, to be like Jesus Christ. Is there any spirit of superiority? Or do you censure others in your heart or think harsh thoughts about others? To think that you're elevated above them or that you're more important? Or even in terms corporately, do we think that we're better or we're the best church? You know, God forbid. We must come to him like a child. So may God give us the grace we need to to follow Jesus, the, the one who's among us who serves. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do just pray, work this spirit in us, Lord, the spirit of humility, Lord, humbling ourselves. Lord, we don't want pride. We don't want any part with it, Lord. We want, we want to be changed, Lord. We want to grow in loving and serving others and dying to self, becoming like a child. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.